Hello sword people, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy. And before we go a moment further, this is going out on the 1st of January 2021. So Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a damn sight better than the last year, which was a gigantic clusterfuck for most people. One thing that you can do to make 2021 perhaps healthier and better than 2020 is to pay attention to your breathing, your mind and your joints. And to help you do that, I have put together a set of free courses on joint care, breathing exercises, meditation. And of course, there's a basic longsword class and a basic rapier class in there too, because let's face it, we are sword people. You can find these free courses at go.guywindsor.net. I hope you'll join us there. Now, on with the show. I'm here today with Nora Canaday, who is an extraordinary artist. I got her to do the manuscript illumination version of the logo for my spatter press, and I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. It's a glorious thing done on vellum, and you must see it to believe it. Um, she's also a rapier fencer, which is sort of how we first interacted when we were talking about Fabris. We'll get into that in a bit. You can find her online at noracanaday.com. That's N-O-R-A-C-A-N-N-A-D-A-Y.com. So without further ado, Nora, welcome to the show. Hi there. Glad to be there. Glad to be here. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, it's early in the morning for you, right? Uh, it is very early in the morning for me. It's 9 a.m. on a weekend. Uh, <laughs> it used to be really normal for me to be up two hours ago before in the before times, before COVID, um, I, uh, because we would be driving to SCA tournaments all over Southern California. The nice thing about being in SoCal is everything is so close. So if you wanted to go to 200 events a year, you could do that. Um, and I've come pretty close some years, I think. Uh, I think you know my bestie, Julian. Of course. Even when, like, when I thought I was like, oh, man, I've done this three weekends in a row and maybe I'll sleep. Julian would show up and knock on my door at 730 in the morning and tell me to get into a car. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what friends are for, right? That's. That's what friends are for. So it's a little different now in the aftertime. Uh, there's less incentive to get up at seven o'clock in the morning on a weekend. Uh, it's nine. It's nine. You didn't make me wake up at seven. I actually probably would have told you now. If you hadn't <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So you're, 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 in, you're in Southern California, correct? I am in Southern California, uh, home of high cost of living and beautiful everything. I uh, get really spoiled because everybody here loves going on vacation and you forget until you go away how lucky you are to live where you are. Um, right. So it's like you end up, you know, 10 days into your vacation and you're like, I I'm really okay to go home. You know, like <laughs> I, I think one day I'll probably be able to spend a month in Italy just because I, I believe in myself. But uh, in general, like I'm pretty lucky to live here. Um, in my 300 square foot apartment, which is where I'm wow. with you from now. That's that's not a lot of space to be locked down in. It is not very much space to be locked down in with my husband and cat. Um, but uh, we're pretty well practiced at it at this point. If anything, we've done like all sorts of home improvement during the quarantine. So our box <laughs> yeah. is. Our box is slightly more tenable than normal. 
Um, but I don't know. I like it here. And uh, if we were on video, you would get my cat right now. He seems fascinated <laughs> that we are not asleep. <laughs> uh, cat, cats, dogs, and children are always welcome on the podcast. And if you had a pet snake, you could you know, bring that on too. That would be fine. <laughs> um, okay, now we first met, um, sort of online at least, a long time ago when you were working on a translation of Fabris and you were using the photographs that I took of my copy of Fabris. And um, I never really circled back with you about that particular project. So dare I ask how it's going? I expect that it is one of those things that will circle back around. Um, I is no longer intimately connected with the sword fighting that I am learning. Uh, okay. My fencing teacher, uh, functionally at the third time I stopped completely and said, well, no, I want to know what the original said, said, we have to learn something else while you're translating Fabris or you're never going to learn how to sword fight because you'll be translating this for the next 10 years. Uh, <laughs> Good. So uh, I still fear, I'm still, I would still like to translate Fabris, but in the meantime, I'm learning Giganti <laughs> um, for the, <laughs> okay. for the uh, sanity of my teacher. Uh, I happen to have two good translations of Giganti that were done by people I know and trust. Um, okay. So, Who are they? Uh, uh, Gary uh, Chalik. I think that's how I pronounce his last name. I, I have two names for everybody because I know them through the SEA. And uh, Jeff Jacobson. Um, Gary had done a translation from Italian, and then Jeff actually translated from a French copy that was uh, produced in period. So, oh, wow. okay. um, so between the two of them, you know, I I have faith. Whereas uh, I I just I every time I pick up. Fabris, I just want to re-dig into it. Um, and it's, sure. it's really, it was really interesting when I started diving into it. Like, Baroque Italian is like a hammer of a language. Like, I guess Baroque English is also a hammer of a language, but man, like, Italian was very like, this is the thing. In case, case you don't understand, this is what I mean by the thing. Just to be clear, what I'm saying is X. <laughs> so it's very repetitive, but it, I mean, I guess that's kind of helpful when you're talking about something so old, right? Is if you weren't sure that you understood what he was saying the first time, maybe by the third slightly different phrasing, you have a better idea of what's going on. But then um, trouble occurs when, when those don't all agree. Yeah, I... Uh, we had an arrangement, and I guess we probably still have an arrangement when I work my way back around that direction. And in the middle of working towards an artistic competition that I cannot an, uh, enter translation in, which is part of why it has been sidebarred. Um, okay. But uh, I was planning to enter translation in it. Apparently somebody did once upon a time, and now it's functionally been discluded because they have no way to have anybody check it. Um, right. Which seems seems legit in fairness to them. Um, but I figure when I circle back that way, I'll probably still have the same arrangement, which is 
Uh, I do the Italian. Anywhere there are too many uh, translations of a single word, I take copious side notes. Um, and then uh, I go sit down with many of the more educated sort of people I know, which is almost everybody other than me. Uh, and uh, we go through my translation to make sure that my English translation of the Italian also, also reads like sword. So right. uh, I think the uh, biggest one was when I, when I did the second chapter, I had translated something as closed. And I was thinking it was talking about distance. And what they were actually saying was to lock, like to lock out which changed All right. yeah. everything. Uh, but which is like, once we went through, it was absolutely what was supposed to be. So I don't know. I will get back around to that project uh, when I finish with the competition I'm working on right now. Um, okay. And what, what is the competition you're working on right now? So in uh, Kaid, which is the Southern California branch of the SEA, um, SEA gets kind of a bad rap for being, you know, people in, you know, hitting each other with foam swords because the heavies, you know, hit each other with foam duct tape retained things. Uh, but really, the society has a ra um, number of rather serious sides. Um, the arts community in particular ha uh, tends to be rather serious and scholarly, uh, and there are more and more uh, historically minded sensors. Uh, plus, I, yeah. we now have like a steel cut thrust anyway. Uh, sorry, pentathlon. Yeah, I, I, well, no, but a, a lot of a lot of the people whose work I have come to depend on and who I've well, Gary Chelak you mentioned earlier, um, and yeah, other others from the SCA. I've had them over to Finland to teach in my school. They they produce interesting work. And yeah, just because the organization has some things in it which are clearly not, to my mind, really historical martial arts, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it or that it doesn't also include stuff that is absolutely relevant to Western martial arts. So, yeah, yeah. I think so. The arts community in particular tends to be uh, rather scholarly. Both uh, Jeff and Gary, who I mentioned earlier with the translation, are what we call laurels. A laurel is the highest arts award you can get in the society. Uh, it's also a job. So you aren't given peerages. It's like it's a, it's an, that is the level that it is within the society, right? But you are offered them because it's taking on a ton of work. Um, right. But they have both contributed their translations as their art to society. Um, much in the same way that I do illumination and calligraphy and now half a dozen other things. Uh, Pentathlon is an arts competition that requires five entries in four categories. Um, basically, you can double up on something you're good at, but only one. Um, the categories are exceptionally broad, like food, all of food is a category you know uh oil painting calligraphy illumination uh watercolor pen and ink printmaking all of those are all in the same category like it is just oh, wow. that yeah no i mean that like flat visual art category is functionally all encompassing so in order to 
enter, you really have to get outside your comfort zone. Um, and since functionally somebody told me that I just illuminate, um, just like, I feel like I should put that in air quotes. Um, I, uh, this seemed like the right way to kind of, uh, drop a hammer on that conception. And, um, so I've been working at it pretty steadily since before quarantine. Um, I'm actually working on replicating a piece of embroidery from the British Library, which is also a book that I am now going to bind when it is done. So it is from wow. 16, yeah, it's from 1620. It's uh, been an experience. I think I have ripped up every stitch on the back cover and put it back down again. Um, hopefully the front cover goes off with slightly less delay. <laughs> So, so what categories are you entering in? You've got uh, visual so, arts, food, um, uh, what, are, what are the others? Baby food. Food is my backup because uh, okay. I, I can whip out an almond cake, you know, on nothing. But uh, I theoretically would like to enter music. I've been working on learning uh, octave mandolin since the beginning of quarantine. Um, I think technically two weeks before quarantine, I met my teacher once before lockdown. Um, and uh, fiber, so I've, I've got embroidery, music, functional object where I'm doing uh, chemistry and then calligraphy and illumination. Um, I'm do, doing like actual making flowers into paint, um, which is... It'll, it'll be fun. I uh, I have a personal love of botanical pigments because they are one of the things that lead to watercolor as a concept. They're like that crossover point between illumination and watercolor because you have these botanical illustrations all throughout uh, the illumination tradition for hundreds of years. But when they go from being illuminations on vellum to being watercolor on paper, one of the things that happens is like the types of paint we have change. Um, and a huge part of that is like this influx of botanical pigments that are more truly water soluble than like ultramarine. You know, you can, you can have watercolors that are made out of rocks. They're just not, they don't have the same quality as the botanical pigments that we get in like the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, okay. okay. So, um, Oil painting is not illumination, is not watercolor. So would you mind, uh, I think most of the listeners, I guess, probably won't know the, the technical differences between them. Okay, uh, that's fair. So oil painting is uh, pigments suspended in oil, and it's usually done on canvas, but it's sometimes done on panel. Um, it, it has a different quality of light than watercolor does. Um, and a huge portion of that is that you can paint white in oil paint, which you cannot do in watercolor. Anytime you want white in watercolor is the result of meticulous planning to leave exactly what you would like to leave in that painting. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, illumination is a historical style more than a type of painting. Uh, the paint that we use in illumination is called wash. 
whether you make it from pigment or you buy it in the store, it is still gouache. Some people will tell you that the stuff, like working with period pigments is different and it kind of is, but really it's still gouache. So, um, and what is just, gouache? Just, <laughs> gouache is uh, an opaque watercolor. So it's functionally just a water soluble opaque pigment. Okay, um, and as opaque as opposed to a translucent pigment. As opposed to translucent. Watercolor is translucent. It is, uh, I love watercolor. It has become a source of anxiety because I haven't done enough of it recently because I keep getting manuscript commissions and so I keep doing manuscripts. Um, but the, the fun thing about watercolor is that it is exacting. Like, um, you, you say I, that, okay, the, the fun thing is that it's exacting. I'm not sure an awful lot of people would understand why being exacting is also fun. Uh, well, I, I do. Fun. I know what you, I know what you mean <laughs> from things like, from things like small sword, which is exacting, but great fun. Um, but, but by all means, to sort of, you know, expand a little on that. Okay. So there's an artist who I just look up to like crazy. Her name is Lori Lamont. She did a 40 foot long watercolor that she put up in the Long Beach Museum of Art. Just this giant roll, like basically painted the whole thing, ran it all the way down the wall. And I've seen a lot of big watercolors and I'm generally not impressed because frankly, a lot of watercolorists are sloppy and basically say this is the nature of medium and it's not. Watercolor can be incredibly tidy and meticulous. Um, and I will tell you, she put up 40 feet of technically perfect watercolor. Like, Bloody hell. I don't know if you, you've ever like seen something that was just made you cry from like the mechanics of it. Like, yeah, I, I, I ended up crying because I'm in the museum walking up and down it going like, it can't possibly be as good as I think it is. Uh, and it was indeed like that good. There's just no mistakes. For 40 wow. feet, just like mind-boggling, and uh, I actually ended up meeting her. She's artist in residence, and we geeked out about brushes and how to <laughs> do four feet of flat wash. And she's like, "You don't need to ask me these things. Like your work is fine." I'm like, "No, like you're a goddess. You don't understand." <laughs> uh, but, oh, hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. That goddess told you your work is fine. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, they, that's... <laughs> That's actually, that's a significant compliment. Like, I, I have a, an email I've got printed out in a file somewhere for when I get really depressed about a book I'm working on that's not going right or whatever. And it was an offhand comment by Neil Stevenson in an email to me saying, you can actually write. <laughs> right? And that's Neil fucking Stevenson sending me an email, which just happens to include the offhand phrase, you can actually write. And it's like, fucking hell, if Neil says I can write, I can fucking write, and I will Yes, I can fix Yeah, this. she's she's wonderful. Oh, yeah. We we Facebook friends, and I continue to stalk her work. You know, um, but she'd given an interview for the like I don't know, like the Long Beach paper or wherever it was, um, that had basically said, "Why is it that you love watercolor?" And she had said, "Because it's unforgiving." Right. Um, which I think is the best answer ever. <laughs> Um, it, it's one of those things where like, if you line up all of your pens and you dot all your I's and you get everything in correctly, 
it will do exactly what you want. And uh, if you don't, it will make you know that you did not do everything that you were supposed to do. <laughs> um, I think I appreciate that there's nowhere to hide in watercolor. I think that um, certainly there are people who don't know good watercolor from bad watercolor, and that's ultimately how bad wa watercolor is tied, is they just you know, sell their work to an unsuspecting public. Um, but in general, like, you know exactly where someone's chops lie on watercolor, because if you make a mistake, it's there. Like, that's it. It's, it's gonna be there. I, uh, I put down a glass of water on a, like a 30 inch watercolor at one point and ended up with this little 5% gray ring. And I'm going, it's not gonna matter because that area is gonna be like 80% navy. So I laid down a wash, like a really dark wash, and that deep little ring was still there. Went, no problem. Laid down another wash. Deep little ring was still there. Three washes later, at which point the paint looked like garbage anyway, because it had lost all its translucency. I'm realizing that that little ring is going to be there forever. Um, so that's the scrap. That's in scrap somewhere. Um, but there's something really satisfying about when it's finally done, right? Because then you have this thing and you're like, I have done this start to finish and not fucked it up. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear on this? Uh, I've, I've already said fuck many times. And oh, so, fabulous. Yes, on, my, on, my, on my podcast, you can say whatever the fuck you like. Fabulous. Um, whereas when I do illumination, I always tell people like illumination for me is less skill and more patience because it's not like I don't mess up. I just, it, you can paint over your fuck ups. So nobody right. sees I, them. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, oil yeah. paintings are, are often full of like paint overs and redos and, and you can see them with like this x-ray photography thing. And you know, when they look at old master paintings, they often have these, you know, if you, you must have millions of books like this where they actually have analyzed the process of the painting and you can see oh well actually that arm was going that way but you moved it to go down yeah. here for this right i mean it's it's you can't it's, even draw on watercolor paper i mean you can but you shouldn't um it'll ruin the size size is the thing that makes paper absorbent so if you erase on it at all uh you ruin the size and you can't have any superfluous lines so they show up under the painting. So what you do is you do the cartoon separately and then you trace it on. So you have no superfluous lines at all and you haven't, you know, damaged your, uh, the chemical makeup of your paper. Wow. It really is um, an art form for the ultra meticulous. It is a art form for control freaks. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. it suits me. Yeah. I, I, I do, I do quite a lot of woodwork and it's, it's differently unforgiving where there are some, there are a lot of mistakes you can make that you can fix, but there are some mistakes you can't, you can't make a piece of wood bigger than it was. So once you've taken a piece off, like many, many times I've, um, a project has come out slightly smaller than I'd originally intended because I'd made mistakes. And the only thing to do was to, you know, narrow things down a little bit to, to accommodate for it. Um, yeah. But it's and, and and wood carving where 
one slip of the chisel and a week's work can literally lie in ruins. Um, it's yeah, it's it's it has its own particular attraction. Yeah, I feel that. I uh, I've never been particularly good at sculpture. Um, I took a couple years of it, and I understand that if I had put the hours in, I probably could have gotten somewhere. I did like you know, I did some metal casting and uh, a little bit of like construction type work working, not like whittling or carving or laser turning or anything. Um, and you know, like it, it's okay. You know, it's not it's not great. I put my hours somewhere else. Um, right, I, but it's all I about always, the hours, right? Yeah, you, you, and and at some point in the future, you might get bitten by the wood carving bug and put in the thousands of hours required and be just as good as everybody else. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's one of those things where I would have to put in tens of thousands of hours on wood carving. There is a certain point at which skills transfer between media. Um but the skills involved in three-dimensional art are so much different than the skills involved in two-dimensional art that I would really be starting at, like, zero. Like, really, I would be starting at nothing. Um, and that's fine. I started from nothing on fencing. I had, you know, right. ter- yeah, well, terrible as, 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 body as, awareness. <laughs> okay. And, but I mean, that's it's funny because I, can, I can't draw for toffee, but I can... Um, I can wood. I can carve wood just fine. And you know, if I want to make a little mouse in wood, I can carve a little mouse much, much better than I could draw a little mouse. Well, but you've probably put I don't even know how much time into woodworking, right? Well, right. I mean, it was my full-time job for five years, oh, um, many, many years ago. So that's like you know, forty hours a week for five years. That really does stack up. Yeah. It really does. Quite, quite quickly. Um, but you mentioned getting into into swords and starting from zero and stuff. So what did your your um, sort of zero point at swords look like, and how did you move from there? How did you get started? Oh, okay. So uh, when I got my first, I won't say real paying job, I was still making not enough to live on. But when I got my first raise at a job, I decided I was going to do something responsible for myself, and I got a gym membership, which I hated um, and still hate and no longer own. And uh, I was on the elliptical torturing myself, you know, one of three times a week. And a friend of mine called me on my cell phone and said, hey, uh, you should come fencing with me next Tuesday. It's free. And I went, what am I really doing with my life that's more interesting than free fencing on Tuesday? Uh, <laughs> uh, so the next week, I headed out to the local practice. Uh, the friend who invited me did not show up. In fact, nobody showed up except for the person who was running it uh, because it was right after a big camping event and everybody was unpacking and sleeping. Uh, okay. <laughs> but um, we talked swords and SDA for like three and a half hours uh, in a parking lot, which has become a theme of my life is uh, all of my boys talking at like two and three o'clock in the morning in a parking lot after sword events or after dinner, after sword events, you know, some combination of the two. Um, but I came back the next week and they 
stuck a bunch of loner gear on me and gave me the little lowdown of like how to not hurt your friends and then threw me out on a field to get hit a lot. Okay. Uh, which continued for some time. <laughs> um, it is still continuing. Let's be real. Like I'm still getting hit a lot. Um, but it, it's great because they would just shower information on you. And I have since learned in the process of teaching that this really doesn't work for a lot of people. Like the whole showering them cool. information thing does not work for a lot of people. It worked great for me. Um, because they would just like pour information onto you. And if, it, if you, you didn't pick up something that they said, they would just say it again later. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I mentioned, you know, distance and uh, leverage in that. And you got the distance, but you missed the leverage. So I guess I'll just keep repeating leverage and I'll show it to you again and again and again. And eventually, you know, you'll have some idea of what you're doing. Um, I... It got a lot more serious kind of out of nowhere. Um, I was kind of like fangirling all of the really good people at our practice. Like it was really evident that there were people at our practice who were just markably better than everybody else. Um, and um, one day we had this guy named Ronan show up and uh, Ronan great you know we uh painted fencing masks together um oh i've we, seen we, some of your fencing masks and yeah. holy shit yeah i i don't really go for painted fencing masks at all but i've seen yours and i actually want one so <laughs> i'll put I'll, I'll put a photograph in the show notes so people can go and see what a properly painted fencing mask can look like oh anyway. well thanks uh but ronan showed up and you know he was all in like modern closed and it was pretty obvious he didn't know what the SDA was and my attitude was kind of like how did you find your way here exactly um and he's like well I go to you know fencing school on Thursday with you know Ryan I'm like Jesus you go to school with Ryan like he's like you know the best fencer at our practice you know it's like well and and Jeff you know Jeff runs it it's like Jesus, Ryan and Jeff are going to the same school. Like, well, then he ticks down the list. Like, the four people who were attending are the four best people at our practice. Funny I'm going, that. Funny, funny that. <laughs> going, okay, hold up. How much is this, you know, school? And I'm doing the math, and I'm like, okay, hey, I'm just going to cancel my gym membership. Fuck this. I'll go. I'll go fencing. You know. Uh, um, so I ditched the gym membership permanently, and I just switched defending so i would do a wise Tuesday. choice always yeah it's it's a lot more fun um so the first class i took at tattershall was gary teaching body mechanics which okay. was the best class i could have possibly come into i uh feel so so sad for my husband who came into fabric uh and that was the wrong class he needed to come into body mechanics also He's six four. Fabrics is really not for him. Um, <laughs> it is. It is not kind to his hips. Um, but uh, I came into body mechanics and German rapier. Um, okay. I still like German rapier. It's so aggressive. Like 
it hasn't ended up being the thing that I have pursued. Uh, I feel like now that we're getting into Giganti, like I'm a little bit, I've become a little bit of a lazy sensor. I'm much more willing to just kind of like wait for somebody to come to me. And it's like, That's good. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was a very aggressive sensor when I started and I ran off adrenaline all the time. Um, and uh, now I like struggle to get enough adrenaline. So, you know, totally a different set of problems. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, I started going to school and then uh, at some point, uh, Jeff said something to me like, you're not going to get good doing two practices a week. And what he meant is you should go home and do drills. And what I heard is I should find more practices. So for a while, for a while, I was driving up to Burbank on Mondays doing uh, Huntington Beach on Tuesdays, doing uh, like West LA every other week, doing Tattershall on Thursdays and doing tournaments every weekend. That's uh, a good sense of education. Yeah, with, with uh, all that going on, you don't really need to do drills at home. It was really soft. bad. For, it was really bad for my life as a concept. Uh, it was like living off french fries and protein shakes. Um, oh. Because I was never at my house as a concept, because that means like hours and hours of commuting every week. Um, uh, okay. I was, yeah, I it it was absolutely the crash course I needed, and it was also completely unsustainable. Um, right. Yeah. yeah that, I, that does that does require like a personal chef and and you know a chauffeur and yes and not needing to have a proper job. Well, and the, the other problem with it is back then, um, again, because I ran on adrenaline all the time, I could not eat as a concept before or during sensing. Right. Um, and um, because just like the smell of food was like nauseating to me. So practice starts at eight. You don't eat at eight. Um, either you stay out with friends until one o'clock in the morning at a diner somewhere, which I've done a lot of, or you drink a protein shake and go home and sleep at three and wake up again at seven o'clock tomorrow. That's um, not, that's not a lifestyle that's good for anyone. Uh, well, I, you know, I've done it. Um, yeah. it was, it was absolutely a good crash course. I think that it is not unlikely that in the aftertime, I'm assuming they're going to be in after times, although I'm in the U.S., so who freaking knows at this point. Um, the uh, I will probably end up hitting at least one other practice when the after times come because I'm going to be starting from nothing again. I haven't fenced another person since February. Um, so it was a good crash course. Um, the weird moment for me, because I just had terrible body awareness. Like I'd never done sports or it would be like if you started visual arts that you had been blind before. Like just, I had no concept of what I was looking at or what I was supposed to feel or where I was going with it. Um, I was working uh, at an office building that was mirrored so as you would walk by it, you know, yourself was walking next to you. And 
I like jumped out of my skin one day when I stepped into stride with myself, like with the mirror to one side, because my posture changed so much. It felt like a stranger had come into stride with me. And like, I don't know if you know that feeling where like somebody you don't know is suddenly walking with you and it's like very alarming. Yeah. I realized I was walking next to myself and I'm like, the world has gotten weird. Like, you know, basically like that doesn't look like me. You know, it doesn't move like me. Um, but I don't know. It was worth it. And I, I've had wonderful friends who are incredibly understanding of the level that I came into this at. Um, I think Jeff personally rotated my shoulder like a hundred times over two weeks. Um, I now know where that weird little muscle that you use in fourth position is, but man, like <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> I did not know where it was. Like you can talk about it all you want, but like that muscle was functionally invisible to me when I started. Um, we actually have been talking about this a lot, uh, and about the way in which, um, martial arts is hard to teach compared to visual arts. Um, really? We, yeah. Well, we have, oh, oh yeah. Jesus, I can okay. teach somebody calligraphy in an afternoon. Um, well, but, okay. Okay, okay. Let, let's, let's see if this is actually true. Right. One of these days, we're going to end up in the same geographical location and we'll take an afternoon and you teach me calligraphy because my handwriting is shocking. Yeah, tell you what, a lot of people with bad handwriting have excellent calligraphy. Um, well, there we go. And that's because calligraphy isn't writing, it's construction. Okay. Okay, so you're not like writing anything freeform, you're constructing it one stroke at a time. Um, okay. Don't get me wrong, I can't teach you how to be good at calligraphy in an afternoon. You're going to have hours <laughs> No, 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 of course. Um, but you mean there's no magic concept, button you can just push? Really? <laughs> no. The problem is that Hours are also not the solution. And I think that um, we end up in this spot where there are two types of people. There are people who believe that all things are God-given talent. Uh, and those people don't really get very far because either they think too much of their own abilities and they never push themselves far enough, or they give up because they think that they don't have the ability. Right. Or there's Camp B, which says, Put in all of the hours, and you will be good at a thing. And both camps are bullshit, frankly. Um, well, well, okay, I'm I'm closer to Camp B, but the thing is, I am closer just, to Camp just, B. Just hours alone don't do it. You have to do the right things during those hours, like really I, specific, I deliberate practice. I actually think you can do the wrong things so long as you are aware. So long as you're able to identify what you're doing is wrong. So, oh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I, I mean, you need to be doing the sort of practice where you can see, basically, you can see failure as it happens and yeah. you know what to do differently. And so you can deliberately change what you're doing towards the model that you're going for. Correct. You know, it's, it's, it's not perfect practice makes perfect and it's not practice makes perfect it's intentional practice makes perfect right Bingo. the reason yep. i always tell people that i can teach them calligraphy quickly is because calligraphy is still typography it exists on a grid i can teach somebody what to look for 
fast enough that they can go home and put the hours in. The hard part is teaching people something where there are less concrete things for them to look at, right? Anything mm -hmm. that you can like math out is easy to teach because you can literally put it on a grid and be like, if you are doing well at this, this is going to hit this line. This is going to hit this line. This is going to line up vertically with this line. Uh, and if it's not where you want to come back and see me, basically, you know, whereas teaching something like drawing is much more abstract, right? Then you, you're talking to people about line quality, which is not an easy thing to, you know, teach somebody in a, an hour or so. Maybe you get line color, but you're not going to get shading or you're not going to get like, uh, pattern shading. There's just too many things that go into it for it to be an easy teach. Um, but with visual arts, everybody has eyes. Like you can teach people to see what they need to see. And the challenge is never teaching people how to do something. Like I think that's where we really fail is we go at teaching like we're teaching somebody to do something. But we should be teaching people to understand something so that they can correct their own work because if you teach somebody how to do a lunge, but they don't understand what makes it good, they're never going to be able to correct it on their own. And it's never going to be better than when you left them. Um, sure. So my goal is always to teach people what they need to do to be able to make progress on their own. You know, if they get 10 minutes of artistic instruction from me, but they get half an hour that lets them know what they're supposed to do when they go home, well, then they go put in the hundreds of hours, you know. Um, hopefully with an I and the ability to make that kind of conscious practice and those that like to be able to fix their mistakes going forward. Um, but you know, fencing is hard because yeah. you, there's not a good way to establish early on what something is supposed to be when it's correct because you can't see yourself. You have to feel yourself, and in order to feel it, it has to all. You have to do it right to feel it being right. Whereas you can see somebody else's art being right, and conceptualize that as like being able to look at your art and know whether or not it's right. You can't feel someone else's sensing. Do you know? I disagree. I I spend my whole life teaching people fencing and. The, there are there are ways of creating an environment with a natural feedback system that gives people the feeling of what it feels like when it's right. And then what I normally do is much easier in a private lesson than in a class is I basically fiddle about with things and cheat until they get a feeling of what it's supposed to feel like. And that can take five minutes or half an hour. Um, and then once they've got that feeling, I tell them to name the feeling and they give it a name. And then whatever else they're doing, they're always looking for that feeling. And then every other action they do should have that feeling, sort of like supported, deliberate, controlled, powerful motion. And, you know, and if it's a, if it's a tactical question, it's, it's even easier, really, because all you have to do is make sure that the student gets hit every time they do the wrong thing and hits you every time they do the right thing. And they pick it up really quickly. But the problem with that is that it took me, well, I guess 
10 years of teaching full-time for a living before I learned the trick of that. And then it took me another five years of doing it full-time for a living before I actually got good at it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a solved problem, but it's not a simple one. Yeah, it is not something that I feel like I have been able to understand as I go along. Um, I, I can tell you, I know factually I have done things correctly because I have been told by people who know better that I have occasionally done things correctly, uh, but I couldn't replicate them or tell you whether or not what that felt like or what that was like in the moment to save myself. And, okay, I'll, um, I'll do you a deal. I'll I do you a deal. absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely get hit when I do the right thing, and that's kind of also the nature of venting. So uh, figuring out what's what's good is hard, yeah, and but- correcting on it is harder it's 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 hard to like get out of a match and be able to like dissect everything that happened well enough to then analyze something that's already gone which in fairness is something they focus on a lot at tattershall which is really helpful to me is they they train people to be able to like walk off and look back at what just happened um but it's still just nightmarish hard it's like okay well what happened this and this then what uh i don't know that's why serious fencers have coaches who are watching when they fence and who will do that job for them if they if they miss something so even even the best fencers in the world don't normally do that entirely on their own they have a team for it because it's hard that is uh that sounds great my uh <laughs> my fencing teacher and i are less uh our relationship is more academic. Okay. We spend more time on Giganti than we spend doing technicalities. Um, Fair enough. And uh, he's also kind of my sponsor into that like group of people. Um, and and it's good to have other people who like care about historical sword fighting and you oh, know, are willing to willing to do extreme geekery with you. Um, I was just going to say yep. earlier, the um, I was going to I offer you a deal, right? You teach me calligraphy in an afternoon, and I will teach you to know when it's right in the same time in the same time frame. I can do that. I think that'll be I, fun. Uh, well, now we just uh, have to get no, the pandemic and get into the same into the same location. I I really want to get to London anyway. They offered to let me come see the book that I'm embroidering in person. And it was like, Uh, I went through just like, they made the offer to me right after I finished my honeymoon when we were dead broke. And um, Josh and I were like running crazy math and like jumping through hoops. And I didn't have any time off. We were trying to figure out if I could take like a four, one more, you know, unpaid day off and do like a four day turnaround where I like, did a massive rush to London and just lived in the British library for two days. Um, and we ended up deciding we couldn't afford it. <laughs> but ho- hopefully when the pandemic is over, I can come meet you and I can come, you know, see my book in the British library and maybe even bring the finished book and show the curator. Cause that would be kind of neat. Um, very neat. I have been like showing the book over and over again to somebody who knows what they're doing to make sure that it is a, uh, you know, not become a catastrophe when I wasn't looking. Like, it looks okay to me, but, you know, what do I know? Um, 
it's not my primary art form and I haven't spent long enough in it, you know? So it's like, you have to have somebody else teach you what to see. It's like, you know, somebody has to teach you what to feel in fencing. Somebody has to teach you what to see in calligraphy. I will tell you, man, I'm going to hold you to that because I have a very good track record teaching calligraphy. Um, Excellent. The best calligrapher in uh, California is down in San Diego. He, uh, he's like Laurie Lamont scale, but calligraphy is like wow. total God. And uh, the guy has like 30 hands just memorized. It's just mind boggling. Um, and he can just like spit out like 1400 characters of calligraphy without make, making a mistake. Like he's just that guy. Um, but uh, he like participates in a scriptorum, which is like, basically a scribal arts practice meetup. And they have no calligrapher down there. And um, one now, I guess, because they got the, the new guy who only works with quills. But he knew calligraphy before he came to the society. Whereas, you know, I've got like three people showing up regularly for my scriptorum and three people doing calligraphy. And it's like, well, how do you get them to do calligraphy instead of painting? And it's like, well, I set them up with it and they found out it was easy and they kept doing it. So... You know, I, we make it too hard. Like it's construction. Like you remember when you were a kid and you like had to do printing on like the gridded lined paper. Yeah. Like there's no reason that you should teach calligraphy differently. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, a little bit more dif different than that, but you get the idea. Like it, okay. everything lines up. It's not so bad. I'll bring you a pen. I, uh, okay. This is like one of my contributions to society is I run around giving away calligraphy pens. Like uh, <laughs> That's a great contribution to society. Well, the thing is there, if you go buy a calligraphy set at a store, they're expensive. But if you go up to John Neal, which is like a book, book, what are they called? John Neal booksellers? John Neal booksellers. If you go up to John Neal booksellers, you can buy a gross of pen nibs. Okay? Wow. I've done this. Uh, mm -hmm. And you go buy a, a gross of reservoirs and you go buy uh, scratch nib handles, which are like, you know, a quarter of the price of pen handles, even though they're the same damn thing. And uh, you can put together a hundred pens for like, you know, $75. <laughs> <laughs> Just walk around teaching people how to like temper nibs and stuff. You'll probably get a kick out of it on a, the really good calligraphy pens. You uh, you light them on fire first. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, because the for whatever reason, um, and maybe they'll hear this and you know you know what the hell. Um, the Mitchell nibs, which are made in England, uh, are the best. They're made out of spring steel. They're like freaking great. I've, I've come to appreciate browse because I can just put a browse and a pen and go. Browses are done when you get them. They're German. Um, but the English pens are not done. Uh, among other things, there's one reservoir for like eight nib sizes. They don't fit. You have to put them on with pliers. Um, I don't know why they don't have multiple reservoirs for multiple pen nibs. It's just like, I don't know. They just don't care that much. Uh, I'm convinced that they've been using that same stamp for like a hundred years and it's not tempered. So you have to like burn the varnish off it 
and heat the pen nib and dunk it in water and it'll turn blue. So, you know, you did it correctly. But it's like this oh, wow. whole thing. Yeah, it's like this whole thing. Like, I really wish that I could get a Mitchell nib that was as ready to go as the Browse nibs because it would be better quality. Also, Browse doesn't do the same um, uh, like it doesn't have like a broad nib, which is like a chisel tip, right? Like their stuff is more pointed pen. So okay. like I need Mitchell to like, but then again, the fact that Mitchell like doesn't bother with all this stuff makes their product really cheap. So <laughs> they're kind of mixed feelings. You know, I won't be able to give out as many pens if they bring their stuff up to the price of Browse. So just okay. sit there. My student uh, loves lighting things on fire. It's great. I can hand him nibs and because uh, he does like blacksmithing too. Not that right. I teach him that. Uh, I, he was super excited. So now when I prep them, we sit together and you know he lights things on fire for an hour and makes them happy. <laughs> <laughs> now in Japanese sword arts, there's a strong association with the brush. So the sword and the pen, the sword and the brush, um, and I've sort of. I have a similar sort of feeling for it with, you know, I write books and I do swords. Do you feel a kind of artistic connection between your sword play and your painting? Uh, you mean my art and my fencing? Yeah. Okay. You said sword play and fencing, and I'm like, same thing. No, I said, I said uh, sword play and painting. Oh, painting. Yeah. My bad. Uh, right. I really don't. Um, you know, one is so meticulous and controlled and like rather stationary, uh, and the other is so active. Um, but I also just really don't connect with Japanese swords as a concept. Uh, I got assigned Book of the Five Rings, which I read eventually. It's it's ridiculous. I could I I had an easier time reading Machiavelli than I did reading Book of the Five Rings. Book of the Five Rings is like, is, Book of the Five Rings is like a nothing book. It's like, I don't know, like 50 pages or something, right? But I kept falling asleep. And uh, during like the, the like bullshit meditative parts, like the only, the only silence is sound or whatever the fuck it is. It sounds like a bad yoga, like uh, intro, you know? Okay. Um, I have now been sent back to Book of the Five Rings by my teacher three times. I'm like, okay. I'm getting mad at him. Like, um, just, I, you know, he's like, how is this relevant? And I'm like, it's not because many of the things in this book may be relevant to like war, but they're not relevant to what we do in that I would never, ever want to use some of those tactics in, you know, a polite, a polite situation. Like, I like my opponents, right? I'm not going yeah. to like comment on on whether or not it's valid to put the sun in their eyes. It's just not how I want to win, you know. Um, uh, also, uh, do you listen to our fake history? No, I don't. Okay. First of all, you should. Because uh, Sebastian Major is brilliant. He's a he does these podcasts where he like looks into popular myths and legends and tracks back. To, like their historical sources and figures out what what's fact and what's fiction and like where it all came from and how it boiled down to where we think how we think of it today. So that's um, our fake history, correct? Our fake history. Got it. Okay, I'll uh, put a link in the show notes. Uh, and he did he did an episode on Misashi 
And I had the uh, misfortune of listening to it before I read Book of the Five Rings, ah, which made it good. impossible to take Book of the Five Rings seriously. <laughs> um, I, I, it matters a lot to a lot of people around me. I know that, uh, you know, it seems like my fencing teacher got a lot from it. I know Jeff must have because he put it on the school curriculum. Um, but I just don't relate to it at all. I'm really looking forward to the courtier, which I think is going to be a better match, um, okay. which I think is like 400 pages compared to the 50 pages of Book of the Five Rings. But uh, I I will say, though, uh, in Book of the Five Rings, he has that intro where he talks about uh, essentially the various craftspeople involved in making a house. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Honestly, I read the book about 15 years ago, and it didn't really resonate with me either. So, Oh, thank God. I'm not the only one. That's wonderful to hear. I, I feel like so bad about it because people are like, yeah. it's this great philosophy. And I'm like, I, but I'll tell I, don't, you why. I don't see it, guys. Like, <laughs> I, I, but I'll tell you why. It, it's one of those books where particularly because it's been filtered through translation from a very different culture, it has spaces in it where you can basically read whatever you want. So so much of it can be really whatever you want it to be. And that's not a bad thing in a book necessarily because the function of a book is to change the reader. And if if it does that by leaving space for the reader to put things, that's fine. Um, So I'm not criticizing it on that score. But yeah, to me, it's just... um, I don't know. I'd, I'd never really got anything useful out of it that I hadn't already got out of Fiore or, you know, insert pretty much any other philosopher here. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. And I think maybe that's the problem is I was looking for something. I was like, I wasn't willing to just kind of fill in the blanks. Like I was looking for something that wasn't there ultimately. Right. Um, and it just, the, the part of it that's very philosophical uh, is kind of mind-numbing to me. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I am certain that it is better in Japanese. Just like <laughs> I, sure. I promise you, Fabris is better in Italian. I um, agree. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, and maybe that's like the struggle is like maybe I need to pick up another translation. I keep hearing the translation I have is very good. It was, you know, passed on to me by friends who read the same translation and it seems to have done wonderful things for them. Um, <laughs> it just, it just doesn't work for me. I, for me, art and sword fighting are very different. They're very different senses. Okay. Um, you know, and um, they're very different processes. It's a completely different headspace. Maybe it shouldn't be a different headspace. Maybe that's part of what I'm screwing up. But it is, for me, ultimately, a very different um, headspace. Because I can plan everything. Like, you got to remember, like, I'm a watercolorist, right? Like, at the beginning of something, I know exactly what everything is going to do and the order in which I'm going to do it. And if I don't do that, then I know it's going to screw up. I can't control what my opponent is going to do not in entirety. So there's no way to like completely plan the process, which makes the headspace very different. Um, I wish I could plan a fight all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) To to my mind, I mean, the main connection is the state of mind in which you 
deliberately practice uh you use the term intentional practice so the the skill of intentional practice through which you learn skill x once you have once you have developed that ability to practice in that way you can transfer that understanding of practice to whatever other art you want that's that's kind of my read on it i think that you can transfer your understanding but that It's different because the sense you're using to analyze it changes. Okay. Like, um, for me, at least, I found yeah, yeah, it sure. very different. It's kind of like if you were teaching somebody music, training somebody's ear is much different than training somebody's eye. And while I am approaching music much the same way that I approach art, which is intentional practice with an understanding of what it is I'm supposed to be fixing. Mm -hmm. um, I got so mad when I first started mandolin like just because all the musicians i knew were like it's fine just put in a lot of hours and i'm like no i know this is a lie <laughs> right yeah you can't just put in a lot of hours you have to put in a lot of hours doing the right thing like yeah and it's, you know it's muscle right... memory so because i've already made this mistake with fencing which was you know getting really enthusiastic and building up a lot of bad muscle memory uh which i then had to break down later painfully um and i have like done so much of fencing is i've hurt myself so much fencing it's not even funny um i uh but it, it's still different like um just because you are having to teach a different sense so it doesn't transfer over as smoothly as i would like but it's definitely relevant the idea that like you move forward by intentionally correcting something that you have an understanding of. Like we should teach people how to see before we teach people how to make things or yeah, do things. Sure. Um, okay. I, you yeah. know, I hope that, um, I don't know how many people start in historical martial arts at my level. I want to say probably a bunch of them. Like, uh, what do you mean by your level? Like, like, you know, not very much body awareness, not in very good shape. You okay, know, I can I can uh, speak to that. I have over a thousand students um, over the last twenty years, and I would say eighty percent of them, it was their first significant practice of anything. The fact that they could actually walk was something of a miracle. In fact, most of them had to have their walk fixed because they're in the process of destroying familiar. their knees simply by walking. So, yeah, no, I, I think most people start because, okay, for a lot of us, swords are the only thing that involves physical activity that's actually interesting enough to make us get over the, the irritation and pain of having to exercise to get good at it, right? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. right. Jeff so is, it, uh, has often called it outdoor sports for indoor kids, which rings right. very true to me. Yeah. Um, but, man, like... I think it's extra important to let people know that like it is just like it's just gonna be hard and like you you can't have this expectation of instant success like you shouldn't have that with anything you shouldn't have it with music and you shouldn't have it with visual arts and you shouldn't have it with cooking and you definitely should not have it with fencing i've like dropped shoulder blades and dislocated ribs and oh my god like oh 
yeah. I mean, <laughs> I uh, I don't do long sword because my chiropractor said I'm not allowed to anymore because he won't fix me anymore. Uh, oh wow. Okay. We need to talk about uh, your long sword channels. I do. Channels, I, do I do do uh, I do do rapier because uh, I seem to not break myself on that one. But it's yeah. like, you know. This, I'm too freaking stubborn to give it up is the thing. Like, okay. It's kind of like I was really bad at art for more than a decade. I, mean, I went to arts conservatory high school and arts college, and I can tell you I have a decade of really bad work where I was behind everybody else in my class. And I am not behind everybody else in my class now. So I know that if I'm just stubborn enough for long enough, uh, eventually something will click and I will get there. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, like I fenced my first major tournament with a broken finger on my offhand. Uh, like, yeah, I just the just idea been that, that just been that kind of a journey. Finger is horrible. What'd you say? The idea of an artist having a broken finger is is horrible in a way that you know, me having a broken finger isn't such a bad thing, but. Someone who can actually paint like that, having a broken finger, is really quite frightening. Oh, God. You know, the offhand wasn't that bad, but I actually, I tripped in a parking lot last mm. year and actually broke a finger on my right. And that was horrifying and scary. Um, the good news is I broke my pinky. Uh, I have since come to learn that the muscles that control your strength are your uh pinky and your ring finger and that the other fingers are where your fine motor control skills are. So if I can keep my index, middle, and thumb not broken while I fence, <laughs> I should theoretically still be okay. Um, okay. I, hear I, uh, I hear I did an Aikido roll when I fell. Thank God to my like stage combat teacher in high school because like, mm -hmm. I owe him. Uh, I don't remember doing a roll, but the fact that like my entire body was not broken from like tripping over cement is probably a good sign that, you know, Jeff is not full of shit. And I did in fact roll out of that ball. Uh, I did break my finger though. So, Ouch. um, yeah, okay. I mean, but <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm the worst. Uh, like I can that, chatter forever, man. That, that's okay. No, <laughs> on a podcast, that's actually a good thing. Um, uh, but we are, we are running sort of, um, a little past time and I'm sure you want to get back to bed. So, um, I have a couple of questions that I tend to finish up with. And the first is, what is the best idea that you have not acted on? Submitting the pageant of the masters. Okay. I, I haven't kind of gotten my shit together. And honestly, I may not get to it at this point because we can't afford to live in Orange County and I have to live in Orange County to submit the pageant. And if we move to LA County, then I've missed my shot at it and, uh, pageant of the masters is this big arts festival in laguna beach and it is like if you would like to make money as a fine artist like this is this is the route like you know make 30 or forty thousand dollars in a summer over the course of seven or eight weeks wow um, yeah i mean it's it's a lot i uh all of the really big art collectors go there you know people sell their paintings for real money Actually, you would probably crack up. There's a little cluster of art fairs down there. And there's Festival of the Arts, 
which is the one that I want to submit to. And then there's Sawdust, which was functionally created to be the craft equivalent of Festival of the Arts. It's like where all of the things went that they were like, that's not art, that's craft. Which okay. We we could get into like a whole thing about why that's bullshit and why the the terms of art and craft like diminish people who do traditional functional arts, but that's like neither here nor there. So we have kind of like Sawdust, which is the craft festival, and you have Best of the Arts, which is the like more quote unquote fine art festival. And then you have Art of Fair, which is kind of the fair that popped up for people who were not good enough to jury into either of the two other places. Okay. Um and um it's like if you go through them you'll see like a watercolor for like fifty dollars at art affair and you'll go across the street and you'll see another watercolor for like seven hundred dollars at festival of the arts um and the quality is like you know why the festival of the arts paintings are there and um i've had people over the years who are like oh you could anybody can get into art affair and i'm like but once you're there like you're stuck there like uh, you've made yourself that person. So it's like for a long time, I didn't feel like I was good enough to jury into festival of the arts. And now I ha am good enough. Like I'm positive. I know I went and stocked the competition last year. Um, I like went to festival of the arts and went and tracked down every other watercolorist. So I could like figure out where I was in the jury pool. Right. Um, but then I'm always busy doing work for other people. And it's gotten hard because, like, I'm making thousands of dollars on eliminations now. Wow. Um, Good. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like, my <laughs> once upon a time, God, I, I don't know how we work this smoothly into your podcast, but we got to figure it out because this is a valuable lesson. Okay. Once upon a time, uh, I had done a whole bunch of eliminations for free. And I was basically just doing it for my friends because I love my friends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, some, I was tired. I had just finished a five foot tall roll of arms and a friend of mine got his invite to uh, be a master of defense, which is the uh, peerage equivalent for fencers. It's like the highest fencing award you can get. And he's like, how's your backlog? And I'm like, bad and I'm tired basically. And he's like, okay. sure, but you're the only one I want to do it. Puppy dog eyes. Yeah. Mallory's okay. like super, super dangerous like that. And I'm like, I'll, I'll think about it, you know, and, you know, he's like, I'll pay you. And I'm like, in my head, I'm going, you can't possibly pay me enough. I'm tired. You know? And um, I'm bitching at my extreme capitalist friend uh, who I'm no longer in contact with, but he, he used to be like the, the demon on my shoulder. He had served a definite purpose in my life for a while. Um, and I'm like, I don't want to do this stupid thing. He's like, well, so give him the fuck off, right? Yeah. And I'm like, he's like, then you won't have to tell him no. And you won't have to do it. And I'm like, it's an excellent idea. Sure. Okay. Go back. It, like, do all the math. Because the guy wanted this crazy thing. It's like all black and gold. Just massive pain in the ass. And I didn't own any of the stuff I needed to do gold work. I like, you know, wrote it all up. Calculated out all the gilding kit and like a little, little bit of a couple other things. And, uh, gave it to him and he PayPal'd me within the hour. And ah. I called up my friend super angry at him and I'm like, it didn't work. And he says, congratulations. I thought this would happen. I'm like, you set me up. I'm like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? And he's like, well, your fuck off price is too low. 
And I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> now I have to do this stupid thing. So uh, there is a, the, what my friend has dubbed the fanciest fuck off uh, in history. Um, it's just, just this massive, you know, black and gold. It's got like 27 sheets of gold leaf on it. Um, 20 sheets of white gold, another seven sheets of, of yellow gold. Um, but the point is, like, I end up doing, after that, like, I figured out my fog off price was too low. And frankly, I couldn't have possibly dreamed that anybody was ever going to pay my fuck off price, which is now well below my base price, by the way. <laughs> um, of course. So it's it's hard because I'm like, I should really put together a show for Pageant and Masters. Somebody wants to pay me $2,000 to do an illumination. Yeah. Yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially uh, living in so SoCal. It's expensive. You know, like, I think that eventually I will manage to get my way clear of enough things that I will enter Festival of the Arts. If for no other reason than my husband has started playing guard dog and telling people I won't do things for them. Um, yeah, he, he has an excellent pur- purpose in my life. And part of it is wrangling people that I would otherwise put on my commission list. Uh, he's gotten very good at saying uh, she'll be available in 2022. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> um, my husband is here, so he's hearing me talk nicely about him, but I'm pretty lucky, <laughs> all things considered. Um, so I guess that's the best thing I haven't acted on yet is submitting to FOA. You know, it, it would change my life. Like it, if I do it, one of two things is hap- going to happen. Either I'm going to, do well enough that I can quit my job, day job. Not that I dislike my day job. I love my day job. I'm a technical illustrator. Um, but uh, either I'm going to do well enough that I can quit my day job, or I'm going to make enough that my career is going to permanently change to fine art. And either no, either way, if I finding out that I'm not good enough to jury in is relevant. You know, like it, being able to acknowledge that this is going to be a day job is okay. It's okay. Like, um, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. So, if I can get my shit together and I can put together the twenty pieces and get a couple thirty by forty watercolors done, which you know I glutton for punishment, I'm not going to submit a bunch of ten by tens. Um, I. I'm not going to be Lori Lamont with 40 feet of watercolor paper, but I should be able to get 40 inches without a fuck up. Um, <laughs> if I if I can get the uh, if I can get my shit together, you know, I like to think that uh, that is going to be a turning point. You know, it's the hard thing is when you have to say no to things you actually want for something that you for really need. really want. Yeah, yeah, for something that you really really want, and it's it's tough. It's, but it's true for pretty much anyone who ever really gets somewhere. They've, they've, yeah. got, they've, they've normally had to do something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. You know, it's crazy to me. Like, my life is all trying to pick between a million priorities. And you meet people who are, like, not passionate about anything. And I don't know how, it's one of the things I love about the historical martial arts community 
and the historical arts community, frankly, just as a whole, mm-hmm. is everybody is passionate about something. You're like everybody gives a shit about something. Right. Yeah. You know, I went on back when I was single a couple of years back. I'd go on dates and it's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, I work a lot. Do you like your job? No. Okay, well, what do you do for fun? Well, I watch a lot of TV. I play some video uh-huh. games. It's like, oh my God. Uh, like, yeah. shoot me now. Like, I'm going to be here for an hour? Oh, we better. I think I'm going to be still in a lot of this hour. Like, because <laughs> you, yeah. it's just so bizarre to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't understand not wanting to do things well. Um, so I end up putting a ton of hours into anything I care about. It's something that Jeff Jacobson and I like really grok together is like he doesn't know how to do something without caring enough about it to do it like obsessively well. Um, and I like I'm kind of the same way like even if I'm not good at something like I'm always working to be good at it I don't understand the idea of like doing something kind of okay and thinking that it's fun like there are those people who like oh, sure. they do something they're kind of okay with it they're satisfied by that and, I, I think know. the American expression is phoning it in is that but right? there are people who are like they are contented with that as their life yeah. strategy it's like yeah, yeah. really weird to me I um you know, I, somebody basically said like, well, they're just hobbyists. I'm like, I, you know, a lot of this stuff is my hobby, but I don't, I don't treat it like I'm phoning it in. You know, it's like, if you care enough to dedicate hours to something in your life, then you care enough to do it well, or like you should care enough to do it well. It's kind of like you do it well as an act of respect to something that you care about. It's like That's the best to reason it. to keep. Yeah, it's the best reason to keep trying to be good at sword fighting. I don't mm. need to win. Like, no. yeah. And you don't, and you don't need but, to be good at sword fighting. I mean, you know. But I want to be good at sword fighting right. because I like sword fighting. And because I like sword fighting, I want to do it well. Just kind of like, sure. yeah. I I think you understand that. I do. Yeah. Now I need to figure out how to get to London and teach you calligraphy. <laughs> <laughs> this sure. is like the best trade well, I have okay. ever arranged. I've 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 got a plan. What you do is you is you submit your work to this pageant of the masters and you make a shitload of money and you use that money to fly to London. <laughs> Done. Easy peasy. Just, just like that. Done, huh? Just like that, yeah. Uh, unfortunately pageant was cancelled this year. All of the juried people rolled into next year. This ah, is maybe okay. good for me because with uh, Pentathlon going on, I was kind of sketchy on making jury anyway. So okay. the soonest I will be able to sell a pageant would be like 2022, I think. That's, well, you need to get to London before that, for sure. And that is kind of my hope. Although, honestly, at the rate the U.S. is going, who knows when the U.K. will ever let us in again. Um, or like any any countries. Um yeah. You know, Josh and I were like kind of looking at our ditch plan. Like, what country could we go to? Oh, no, nowhere. Nobody <laughs> wants us right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, uh, I, do, I do have one more question. My last question um, is if you had a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? Oh, God. 
Uh, well, space for for here at least it's really hard to get uh real nice spaces that we and like competition sized spaces and like we we just have general problems uh arranging like facilities but i'd also like to just see more translation and i'd love to essentially put out grants for people to do translations of the various martial arts because the more translations we can compare the better understanding we're going to have of what we're looking at you know sure. so much of this kind of translation is just like stubborn research um you know like when i was looking at fabrics there was a word that is not italian or at least it is not italian anymore and i was not in my period italian dictionary and then it was not French, and it was not Croatian. Oh, uh, Fabris is in Padua, which is not that far from Venice. So uh, translating Fabris is like you go through and you're like, like every 20th word or something is just something random. Like, huh, it's not Italian. Is it French? Is it Catalan? Is it Croatian? Like, is it Spanish? Um, and ultimately, in order to figure out what this word was, I had to find it in a copy of Castiglione and then look at a period English translation of Castiglione, not period, but closer to period than we are, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then look at the way that it was translated in Castiglione to know what it was in Fabris, right? So like the work that goes into doing these is just so, mind-numbingly intensive i know um, <laughs> yes yeah, so it's like we need as many people as we can on there you know um i'm fortunate i functionally have like when i was working on it and i promise you i'll get back there eventually guy that's right. um i just i just want to i want to kick ass in competition like um and mostly just because like I hate being accused of being a one-trick pony. Like, it's so not me. I've done so many things with my life. Like, every cheetah medium you can think of, plus stained glass and a bunch of other things. Um, but I, I'd like to see, like, little pods like I have. You know, like, I have um, my friend Marco in uh, in Italy, who is, like, my backup he speaks English, I speak Italian. When I do my Italian translation, I send it to him and make sure it's not, you know, a yeah, yeah. walking catastrophe. Um, and then, uh, you know, it goes to like my little like group of stored people who like check it for continuity and make sure it makes sense. If we could get a couple groups like that, that were like really dedicated to doing additional translations, I bet we could end up with a better understanding of what we were looking at. Uh, oh, and uh, more of what you've been doing. Lots of yeah. like high reses available for the public. Okay. You know, um, it, the, well, I mean, with the good job of that. They they are doing a really good job of that. I will say though, like the quality of being able to when I downloaded your Fabris files, it was just mind boggling to me to be able to see the hands in that mm. kind of detail. Um, you know, there's being able to see a picture and then there's 
being able to see the position of the pinky finger. Like it is, a di- not that the fabric illustrations necessarily make a ton of sense. The anatomy on some <laughs> of them is a little scary. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of why I fell in love with it initially is I was charmed by these kind of like little awkward, awkward dudes. Like I'm a little, I'm kind of awkward. <laughs> They're kind of awkward. <laughs> Uh, uh, but yeah, okay. that's that's what I would do. More okay. academics, you know, okay. and space if we can get it. Brilliant. Well, that's an excellent place to finish. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Nora. That's been great. It's really nice to talk to you. You know, you have been super supportive and great, and I'm super happy to know you. I try to give you lots of word fame when I can. So, um, let me know if you need anything else. Okay. Will do. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Nora. Remember to check out the show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast where there are images of her work and they must be seen to be believed. It's extraordinary stuff. So guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can also pick up your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists if you so choose. A shout out, as always, to my lovely patrons on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. You can join us there for extra audio, such as an Ask Me Anything I did for the patrons a couple of weeks ago, and transcriptions of the episodes as they are produced, and a whole bunch of other benefits, features, etc. Primarily, the purpose of the Patreon and try saying that three times quickly, is to keep this show going. So if you'd like the show to continue, please go along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and join us there. It doesn't cost very much and it makes all the difference in the world. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to the extraordinary Rory Miller, author of one of the best books on martial arts ever written, which is Meditations on Violence where we discuss all sorts of things, including sailing across the Atlantic. Yes, you heard that correctly. That's not what he's famous for, but it's one of the things we talk about. So, so make sure you don't miss that show. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have the time to leave a review or rate the show, that would be awesome too. I'll see you next week.